welcome. My name is Xenophon Babadimitris. I'm a professor of biomedical informatics and data science here at Yale. This is another one of those interviews we're recording with guest experts from industry that's supplementary to a new certificate program in medical software and medical AI. Our guest today is Randy Honderton from Orthogonal and Amy and a whole host of other organizations. I got to know him as part of some work we're doing on the use of cloud services for medical devices. So Randy, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I, you joke sometimes you're the non-tech in medtech. So tell us yes. a little bit about how you ended up here. Yeah, yes. My, my official title is Chief Solutions Officer, but my unofficial title is Chief Extrovert Officer at the company. Um, so yeah, I mean, so how did I get into this? Well, if you want to go some very early brief history, um, 1993, I'm a senior at the University of Michigan, majoring in American history with no idea what I want to do with my life. Stumble on the internet, which was sort of its very first days of moving from sort of a very academic and military thing into common use. And I find the very first browser mosaic. And I basically do an all-nighter at the computing center, clicking on links. And I can't prove this, but I swear to you, I only left the computing center when I ran out of links on the internet to click on. I think I clicked on everyone. Um, and I left and I said, I'm not sure what this is, but this is what I want to do with my career. And that's basically what I've done for the last, you know, 30 years now is focus on using technology, data, network communications, all these things to change how we do things with a heavy focus on healthcare. And the last several years, a heavy focus on regulated healthcare and medical devices. Okay, so let's get started with a theme of cloud services in medical devices and how you got involved here. So let's just tell us a little bit about this program. You know, medical devices historically have been this sort of closed boxes. You control the computer, you control the software, you make no changes. The cloud comes along, people want to use it, and we're dealing with some challenges here. First of all, we're going to talk about the challenges in a bit, but why would people want to use this stuff? Like, what is the benefit of using the cloud? Before we get into the problems, let's talk about the benefits. Yeah, yeah. Well, essentially, the cloud has, it's a pain for organizations to run their own computing infrastructure. It can be complicated. There's all cybersecurity challenges. You need to constantly update your 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 software that's found to have vulnerabilities. Um, you have to create a redundant facility here so you can put up your data center here. But if that goes down, you need a secondary data center. It's just a lot of work. And it's not really a core competency from every company needs computers, but it's not a core competency for most companies they want to get into. So the idea of the cloud was shared responsibility. I'm going to hand that off to somebody else, which was not an entirely new concept. Shared computing a bit around, but it really sort of put it on steroids. And what the major vendors, Amazon first, and then Microsoft and Google and others have said is, stop worrying about that. Just let us provide the computers on demand. You don't have to worry about how many because we can scale instantly as to as much as you want. Um, you can design for this. We can, you want to have redundancy? Fine. So you just press a button and it's copied in two or three different data centers around the world. So it really is designed to let let these companies handle something which is a true core competency. And the reason it came out of Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, because these were the companies that perfected web scale, internet scale, global computing. They already knew how to do this. So to offer it as a service to uh, other companies, what they were doing internally was a pretty logical evolution. Um, now they started by saying, oh yeah, and the cloud's a lot cheaper. That's not true. <laughs> that turned out not to be true. The cloud can actually be quite expensive um, but it does give you a very granular control over every single thing that causes an expense. So you're not just buying a server and using it for two years. You're paying per compute or per megabyte moved around, which is great. It's also really challenging because it's almost like, imagine if you were charged on your airplane flight, 
based on every micro movement you made between when you got on the airplane and when you left. If you turn left, that's a quarter. You know, if you turn right, it's a dime, unless you did it on the third day when nobody else was turning right, you know, kind of a thing. Um, but it, it does, overall, if you have a system that needs to be very secure and very stable, generally speaking, you're probably better off letting Amazon, Microsoft, and Google guarantee the lower levels of that stability rather than you trying to do it yourself. They're really good at it. Cybersecurity, they'll have hundreds of engineers all making unbelievable salaries solely focused on cybersecurity because they can have an economy of scale that nobody else can touch. Yeah, and you know, in some sense, this is a trend, right? So if you look at early software, you some people people used to build their own computers, people used to build their own operating systems, people used to build their own libraries, and progressively everything below the user-facing aspect gets farmed out to take advantage of scale. And now we don't even have computers, right? We rent them by the hour. So with that, though, if you look at early medical devices, these lock boxes where you control everything, now you're on the cloud. And that's a problem because we don't control everything, or at least it's a problem as medical regulations are currently read. So can you just talk a little bit about the challenges in using cloud in yeah. medical devices? So Zanius, I'll pose a couple of questions to you as a patient and member of a family, okay? Um, imagine you have a parent who has a pacemaker implanted in their heart. Um, and there's a cloud backend to this that is sending data to and doing analysis and maybe looking for longer term trends and you know in heart health, cardiac function. Would you rather that backend be on a cloud run by Amazon, Microsoft, or Google, or in a data center run by a four or five hundred million dollar um, cardiac medical device company? Yeah, no, it's the call is going to be much higher there. And if you're talking about a four hundred million dollar company, that's one thing. But if you're talking about a twenty million dollar company, that's an even right. right. So generally speaking, you'd rather mom's pacemaker data be in the cloud. But let me let me shift gears. How many times a day would you like me to update the software on mom's pacemaker while she's wearing it and using it? Well, she's not even wearing it while it's in her and using it. How many, how many hundreds of times a day would you like me to update the, the pacemaker to make it better? I think only in extreme circumstances, honestly. This is a fun interview, by the way. You're asking the questions, but keep going. <laughs> it's sort of like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Don't just, you don't tweak a pacemaker willy-nilly. And that's been the med tech perspective is you, we we define exactly what these things do. We define exactly how they perform. We design exactly what the risks are and mitigate them so they don't unintentionally cause people harm. And then we don't touch them because they don't work. But here's the thing, the reason you would rather, here's the here's the interesting twist in systems engineering now. On the one hand, you have a medical device, which you basically never want to touch unless you need to. And when you do touch it, you want to be very, very careful and have a very high buyer on change control to make sure you're not accidentally breaking something in the process of fixing it. On the other hand, you want your back end in a, in a cloud because you think it's more stable. But the reason it's more stable and more secure ironically is because Amazon and Microsoft and Google each make hundreds of changes a day to their cloud. They make nonstop changes. They've gotten really good at constant changes to norm. So they're constantly updating things, patching them, improving them, adjusting probably faster than anybody else to security enhancements. So you've got this contradiction of, okay, so I, I'm going to put part of my medical device in the cloud, some of the key regulated functions, but wait a minute, the people I'm paying to do it are changing it all the time. So you could say to them, well, don't make those changes. I want first, I want permission first. Well, 
to some extent, good luck because you know they, they, that's their business. It's not going to change their entire model for you. Um, the second thing is the more you take back responsibility and the less responsibility you share, the more things are incumbent on you. Now you have to worry about how quickly you can do patches for cybersecurity. So you're basically always going to be on a dated version of the infrastructure. So the question in med tech is, I don't think anybody said we can't use a cloud as a result. Everybody agrees pretty much on balance. You're probably better off in the cloud than your own data center in med tech. And that there's a lot of benefits that can come to medical devices and patients and providers from it. But how do we get comfortable with the risk around somebody else changing the computer that underlies your device all the time where you're not getting advance notice? And if you spot something, it's it's um it's already in there. And, and the, 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 the life sciences comparison I'll make is if you're pharmaceutical manufacturer, you get raw supplies of some kind, you know, something that's chemically manufactured, biologically manufactured, and the truck backs up to the loading dock at your factory to put that, you know, pour that into whatever you use to make your pill. But there's a moment there where they can stop the truck and say, hang on, we're going to sample a bunch of things in this truck. We're going to check it out. We're going to go back and double check the factory this came from. We're going to make sure this quality is good. And only once we're satisfied with the quality, Will we allow that truck, the, the contents of that truck to go into our supply chain, right? We're not going to put it in. With the cloud, it's instant. There's no moment where you could say, hang on, back up. It's already in mom's pacemaker the second the change is made, so to speak. So you have to take a whole different approach to kind of proactive risk management and ongoing monitoring as a result. Yeah, we'll get back to some of that later, but yes. So, and that's how you got involved with this cloud business. And eventually I got involved a little bit peripherally here. So you've been working on creating guidelines for both manufacturers and regulators to allow cloud use. Can you tell us a little bit about the process, how you guys got started here and some of the key issues you face as you move forward? What are the issues we face as you faced both in terms of creating these guidelines and what are the key issues that the guidelines need to cover? I will. And let me give a little context. So there's sort of industry guidance and then there's formal standards like an ISO standard. But all of these are ways that industry, essentially industry and academia and sometimes government come together to define best practices or not even best practices, mandatory practices around quality, you know, ISO 9000, it's based practices around quality management and continuous improvement. So there's this great tradition in med tech, uh, it's really terrific, where the government doesn't just hand on rules and say, this is how you do it. The government frequently comes to industry and says, we have a new challenge. We need to figure out how to manage this together. Why don't you all take a crack at it? We'll sit in on it. And as long as we're comfortable with it, we could even give some guidance along the way. We will adopt your recommended approach as the way we will regulate you. So it's a much more collaborative effort, which is much more realistic because now you have the people who are, um, who are building these solutions and actually know where the flaws are and the risks are doing it themselves. And I think it works pretty well. And I think it's a, we self-police pretty well. And generally speaking, we get a lot better quality guidance and standards and understanding of best practices out of it. So this came from a conversation originally that um, somebody on our team, a guy named Pat Baird from Phillips had with somebody from the FDA who said, hey, all these med tech companies are starting to put device functions in the cloud. The FDA generally thinks that's a good thing and you know, we have good ideas, but it's not clear that people are clear how to do it. So could you could you get industry together to create some guidance? So basically at the behest of the, um, the FDA or at their request, this group of people came together and wrote this consensus report. It was about 10 pages and it said and kind of said, hey, here's some emerging best practices. It was done under the auspices of an organization called the Association 
for the Advancement of Medical Instrumentation, AAMI or AMI. They're essentially uh, a standards body and they're franchised as I understand it within the United States by ANSI, which is the American standards body, which is our official representative in America to the international standards bodies as a standards place you go to, to do guidance and standards for medical devices. As soon as that was done, it was clear that we told people, okay, here's the problem, but we hadn't really given them any suggestions on how to deal with the problem. Um, so what came next, which we're in the throes of right now, and hopefully we'll be getting done in the next several months, is a more like an 80-page technical information report that says how you manage the cloud and what are some of the best practice ways you address the cloud. And in sort of uh, med tech speak, the way you do it is you treat the cloud as a procured service and not a soup, software of unknown provenance, which means somebody gave you some software, you don't know what's in it, but you basically, you own it now. <laughs> you, have, you, own, you have to own it like you're in it. Instead, you're treating it more like a drive up to McDonald's and you're ordering things off the McDonald's menu on the cloud because you know consistency at McDonald's will be the same across restaurants around the world. So once that's done, it will be submitted to the FDA to become recognized guidance, which is a process the FDA has where they say, okay, certain rules and regulations and guidance we write ourselves and publish. Certain times we'll go to somebody else in industry who's written something and say, you know what? They did a really nice job with that. This is how we're going to tell our people to measure best practice and to measure what's good. And so our intention is to submit it and we expect to be approved. And this will become the way the FDA essentially defines best practices for the cloud. After that, we will probably upgrade to a national or an international standard, which is a much more formal process that's, as far as I can tell, akin to like putting something through the United Nations, um, you know, with all this discussion and, you know, different people doing things. Um, if you do a national standard, it's a little easier because you're only dealing with one country. If it's global, you're truly running calls, you know, global phone calls for, for months or years to get these things done. So we, we will go whatever route can have the most impact. Hey, can you give us a little bit of a sample of what are some of these best practices? What do people need to, to do essentially? So you talked about risk management, but let's flesh it out. What are some of the... If you're going to put a medical device function on a cloud computer, you need to admit that you no longer directly control this computer. You are paying somebody else to directly control it. You're indirectly controlling it as a procurement thing, you know, and, and through any administrative tools they give you, but it's, it's indirect control. Admit it, say it out loud. I indirectly control my computer, which was a big deal because even though people were doing it, nobody had actually said out loud, I don't control the computer my medical device runs on. And then we say, okay, once you've said it out loud, you sort of acknowledged that this is a new thing, then you can deal with it. So how do you deal with it? You do the same thing you do with everything in medical device or life sciences. You do risk management. You take a risk-based approach to assessing the risks and figuring out, so you design your system so you can safely do it. And you may come to the end of certain things and saying, you know what, this function will never go in the cloud. It shouldn't go in the cloud because it's too risky. The example I will give is if um, somebody's got a wearable defibrillator, you know, 30 days in the 30 days after you have surgery where you're under general anesthesia, you're much more likely to basically have a heart attack because they brought the body, you know, so close to death essentially to do the surgery and bring you back up and it's not normally running. So you have this wearable defibrillator. And it's watching the, you know, the, the sensors on your heart and monitoring it. And it detects a heart attack. And it says, okay, clear. And it gives a little shock to your heart. Great. You're not going to put that decision-making mechanism, you know, the identifying, oh, you're having a heart attack. And oh, yeah, we need to give you a shock. You're not going to put that in the cloud. Because if the connection in the cloud goes down, that means you have no, no defibrillator now. It's essentially off because, you know, 
the Bluetooth connection is lost. Uh, on the other hand, there's other things you can use the cloud for. You just need to be thoughtful about how you design it. You then look at basically cloud vendors and say, do I think this vendor can provide something that can satisfy my needs based on that? This is to avoid these risks. I need something of X quality in terms of uptime or speed and reliability or cybersecurity or, you know, frankly, even worry about like redundant uh, electricity connections or, you know, do they keep a bunch of spare AC parts on, on hand in a box so that when an AC unit goes out, um, we can quickly, you know, unscrew it and replace the broken part, which is actually really important because servers generate a ton of heat. And if you don't have great AC in there, um, they will they will overload very rapidly and shut down or even break. Um, so you go through this process and you sort of evaluate the vendors, which is a little bit hard because on the one hand, you know that Amazon, Microsoft, Google, you know, these other vendors are all really good at what they do. On the other hand, it's not like they'll like just welcome you anytime for a tour <laughs> and show you what they're doing. Um, they can't accommodate that, frankly. Um, so you have to go on experience and you can try and set performance measures. But again, unless you're a massive customer, you don't have a lot of negotiating power with them. So it's sort of um, to quote the the children's book, Pinkalicious, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Now, the good news is what you get is pretty darn good, right? So that, that's, that's why you go to them. But you basically have to define your performance criteria. And then you have this sort of thing where you say, okay, so for certain things, they promise they're going to be this good. Do I just take them at their word and assume it will always be that good? Or do I trust but verify? And do I, you know, do I, do I keep double checking them to make sure that it's actually working the way it's supposed to? And do I have a fail of, you know, a backup and a, a fail-safe procedure if it's not working that way to, to graciously handle it so the whole system doesn't go down? Um, or do I basically assume they're not going to do it? Like, yeah, they'll say they'll do it, but I'm not counting that at all. I'm going to build all kinds of redundancies. And it's all about how cautious you want to be. Because at the end of the day, if something goes wrong with a medical device, the person who's accountable to the FDA and in a court of law is the medical device manufacturer, not the cloud service provider. The buck stops at the medical device manufacturer, and they will simply be saying, well, if you're doing this device, we assume you did your right homework to know, make sure that whoever you were giving responsibility to could handle it. So it's sort of this assessment process of how to do it. And then you design and then you mitigate and then you manage and you measure. You do statistical process control. You monitor your systems for drift. Are they working within specification? But they're getting a little slower every week. So at a certain point, if that trend continues, they actually will be out of specification. And then you can retest things. Basically, software is all about testing and retesting and making that really automated to kind of, you know, repeat, 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 you know, almost like the old uh, the cell phone commercial. Can you hear me now? Good. Can you hear me now? Good. Can you hear me? You can keep doing that testing over and over to some degree um, on your system after it's live. And that's one of the great parts about modern software is actually modern software and cloud practices, which are often called DevOps, developer operations, really lend themselves to this kind of double checking <laughs> and this kind of, you know, um, I wouldn't want to say trust no one, but double check everything all the time. You know, only the paranoid survive kind of a thing. So those are really the key issues um, for it. The dis dividing line is your our guidance is if if the thing you're getting from a third party is a general purpose computing function, it's a disk, it's a processor, right? It's a network connection, it's a database management system. That's plumbing. Plumbing, you can basically outsource and say, I'm going to hold them responsible to a certain level of detail. 
Where we cut the line is if you go to the third party for specifically for clinical functionality, if you're going to a third party for a real-time algorithm to calculate insulin doses, that you cannot treat as a standard procured service. You're responsible for those, do those dosing calculations and knowing that they work. And that's the dividing line. Generally speaking, you don't go to a cloud services provider for clinical functions. You don't go to Amazon, Microsoft, or Google. You might go to a specialty clinical provider for that, but chances are if they're doing that, they're already in the business of supporting people dealing with the FDA and know how to handle us. This sort of loss of control and verifying in this sort of more open world. And, you know, this is a theme that's emerging in medical tech, medical software, right? In the old days, you shipped a closed box and that was the end of the story. You used to get feedback by mail. You updated every couple of years. Now we're Monday to do cybersecurity updates in, you know, what is it, 90 days, 60 days? That's the guidances that are coming out. So releasing a piece of medical software is living on the treadmill. You are always on call. You always have to keep an eye on things. And this is just one more thing to keep an eye on. It's part of your software is not run by you. But, you know, as I tell people when, when I've had these discussions, there's a lot more of your software that's not run by you. Right. iOS, Windows, Google Chrome, those are also things that are changing behind your back all the time. AI algorithms. Yeah, and you also need to monitor those things. They're not formally cloud. They supposedly run inside your computer. But if Microsoft can operate Windows, upgrade Windows whenever they want, Apple certainly updates iOS whenever it wants, you need to be testing for that too. There's no... Yeah. There's you no you can't assume there. a steady state. So just be in a position to know what, what it looks like when it works for you and be able to retest that in an automated way. And by the way, that's just sort of, that's distributed computing. This is... All the advances, most of the advances that we're seeing in computing are really related to, I'm going to give up a little bit of control and send some task over here, but the amount of functionality and value I'm going to get back is going to be tremendous. So the truth is that your TRS-80 Radio Shack computer in the 1980s may have been the most stable and reliable computer you ever had because it didn't do much. It just did stuff internally. It didn't talk to other things. Right. So it wasn't nearly as interesting because it couldn't do a bulletin board or America Online or the Internet, but it was reliable. And people, people who were back engaged with computers back then say, you know what, I have no proof, but my computer was, has gotten less stable every decade over the last 40 years and not more stable. You know, they, probably my most stable computer ever was the first one I got, you know, that I, I unboxed like that um, because it was simple and it didn't rely on other things. Now, you know, we, we've inverted that. We've inverted that. And we're actually saying not only is it is it more powerful, but it's actually on, on, on average safer to do this, as long as you know what you're doing. Actually, as an aside, before I get to my next question, the classic medical software disaster story was a Therac 25, the original edition treatment machine. It's worth pointing out to people that that company wrote the entire software stack, including the operating system. So yes, it was they had everything under control. And that's the machine that killed people because of course, for some of this functionality, you're better off going to people who write operating systems for a living as to what you can do at home. And the same applies, of course. Because there was a weird low-level thing that they hadn't accounted for, right? Where basically yeah. the system was processing, it didn't move the cursor to the next line to show you it was processing. So people yeah. just kept banging on the key, right? Well, yeah, it's a long story, but we can tell the story some other time. Yeah. Let me ask you one last question, uh, Randy, here. So as you started working with this TIR committee to do the cloud what has surprised you from this process? You had to deal with a lot of people, a lot of entities, industry, government. 
random academic that shows up. What has surprised you? What have you learned from the process as opposed to the actual cloud-specific things? One I've learned, and this is probably, and this isn't even a standards thing, and it's probably, frankly, a lesson I shouldn't learn, but I guess I just keep running into the same wall, is how much work it is to coordinate with people who are part-time and donating their time on these very complicated things that go on for a long time, because you have people who have busy periods and less busy periods, you come and go. So you're having, you know, every two week meetings, but it's not necessarily the same people. Getting these things done is hard. They're a project like anything else. So the key is you want your project not to drag on because the longer your project drags on in any field, the less likely it is to get finished because the ground is shifting under you. That's one. The second one is I've just frankly been floored in a positive way by the caliber of people in this industry the caliber of high level thinking of people who can think out of the box and, and and understand new situations and master new technologies and apply it to medical devices and who are really, really committed to it, as well as the, you know, this amazing back and forth with, with the FDA that I, I never knew there was that kind of industry government collaboration to actually optimize regulation and, and you know, and improve these products for our benefit. That's been a really, really neat thing. Um, to watch. And I frankly, even the commercial vendors who have been involved, and we've had a number of the major cloud players, and they're not they're not um, advocating for something that's good for them and their company. Their view is rising tides lift all boats. We need to make these things safe. And oh, by the way, we'll get a lot more business once we've proved it safe and the FDA has kind of signed off on this. So let's all do it together. And they're they're in the weeds working together. And that's a really, in this day and age, that's a really nice thing to see. One of the challenges, and this is a challenge we're dealing with as we develop in the certificate for ourselves too, you have a lot of different kinds of people on this committee, right? You have quality people, you have software engineers, you have standards people, you have the whole, how do you even get them to speak the same language? I've seen some of that, but I'm just curious to see your take on it. A lot of it is asking why, what is it, five times, six times, right? Yeah, it's, six it's when somebody uses a term you assume that the, when they're using that term, you have a different definition than them. Don't assume that when they when they speak the term, you have the, the same definition as they do. And you need to ask, what do you mean? And sometimes, you know, you'll find very regularly that we're using the same words, but we're meeting them differently. Or many people haven't, just because they, they it's the first time they're doing this and nobody's gotten together to compare these problems. Nobody's thought through all the implications and sort of the levels of detail that definition. Well, you say, okay, so your definition is A, B, C, D. Now, are you talking about E, F, G, or H? And they're like, oh, it never even occurred to me that E, F, G, and H were a thing to think about. And you talk through it. So it's really about getting on a common language and definition. The good news is, and the challenge is, there's a lot of existing standards work and guidance work we're building on top of it, scaffolding. Um, it's almost like writing a religious text. It's a commentary in another religious text of what do you do in a modern era in this ethical situation? Um, actually, I, I really genuinely believe that theology students would probably be really, really good at this. People who do critical Bible studies would be really good at this. Um, and so you have to basically just go back to the core. And you, particularly when you're breaking new ground in areas, once once you kind of have an area and it's established and everybody's worked with it for a while, you know, you can think about. I don't know, some kind of new spring, you know, at the beginning to put in a device, it's some work. Once you got it down, everybody kind of knows and they just kind of do their thing. They've divided up the work. But at the beginning, everybody has to be in each other's shorts a little bit. They have to really be learning each other's things. And that's the good news is the hard part about this was doing that. 
The good news is we think the document we've produced is actually created a common language. So people in all these different departments in med tech companies, you know, R&D, software, hardware, um, clinical affairs, quality, regulatory, customer support, post-market monitoring, all these different functions that integrate will actually have a common language to do this. Because right now we're not at a point where you can say, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in charge of regulatory and the cloud people handle that cloud stuff. And I don't really understand it, but I'm sure they've got it fixed. That won't cut it now. You have to actually, everybody has to know something about everybody else's business. That means that, you know, R&D and engineering types need to understand something about the law and regulation and vice versa in terms of understanding the technology. It's just the way of the world. In some ways, you made a great ad for what we're trying to do with the certificate program. So yes, that's exactly our pitch too. That everybody needs to understand a little bit of everything else. Randy, we've gone on for a while. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't covered or? No, I think actually the, the point you, you emphasized in that you, this is an era for deep generalists. When I was younger, I, I, I earlier in my career, I, I, I had that, but there wasn't a cool phrase that social scientists had created like deep generalists. We were called jack of all trades, master of none. Deep generalist sounds much cooler. Mm -hmm. uh, and there actually is some science behind it now, as I understand, but I think there, there really is a lot of that going on. It's exciting though. And what I'll tell you is getting involved in these things is really rewarding because for the people who've worked on this, I think pretty much, you know, every medical device that's an overstatement, every medical device is going to be connected in the future. Maybe not your average disposable Band-Aid isn't going to be connected, but things are more and more connected. And we expect to see the fingerprints of our work benefiting pretty much any connected device in the future, at least for the next generation. That's really rewarding. That's impact far beyond what we could do in our individual companies and the products we create and the devices we create, we could really, you know, do something that's a broad benefit. And that's, that's exciting and rewarding. So I would invite anybody who has the time or the interest at some point in your life to actually get involved in one of these processes. Okay. On that note, on that recruitment pitch for standards committees, we'll stop it here. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much.